The Magic Book Club Podcast. This is the Magic Book Club podcast. Hello, my name's Tom Price. Welcome along. Now, this month, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, the author Nick DeSemlian, who has written a book called Wild and Crazy Guys, uh, which is about the Tory leadership battle. Not um, it is, in fact, about... Well, Nick, why don't you tell us? It's about 80s comics, right? Yeah, it's about this golden age of, of comedy in the 80s and, and the kind of larger-than-life guys who brought it, brought it about. Uh, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, John Candy, Rick Moranis, guys like that who are kind of comedy legends Mm. had really interesting stories, I thought, so I wanted to tell it. It's a fascinating time. And for me, I'm, what, 38? So we're in the 80s when all these films existed. They were just this sort of... They were just there, and it never occurred to me that there was much of a history or a story behind how all these films came about, films like Caddyshack or Groundhog Day, and all these guys were just pre-made, ready-made stars. So to find out how that happened is really interesting. To find out, secondly, that it all comes back, as is often the case with American comedy, to Saturday Night Live. That is the hub, isn't it? That's where this all begins. Yeah, that was the the incubator, the lightning flash, the, you know, these guys kind of came together, you know, through sort of, coincidence really that they were all there in New York at the same time and just kind of revolutionized TV comedy sketch comedy and had a huge effect all over America changed what comedy was really mm. and then went out of Saturday Night Live into movies and, and brought that same kind of energy that unpredictability that sense that anything could happen and just made these kind of anarchic comedies that are classics. And you can't help but reading about this, and it is, it's a fascinating story, and I would say as well, you've put an excellent uh, nerd filter on it, because clearly if you're writing this book, you must be a massive nerd, Nick. But oh. uh, you know, it, it is re- you've taken out the proper interesting stuff, you have edited down, because obviously you, I feel like you could probably write 60,000 pages on this stuff, right? But you've condensed it and taken the best bits. Is that fair to say? Because as someone who, I'm not massive on this era, but... I, it's it is really interesting. It's the nuggets are it's brilliantly written. Well, thank you so much. But yeah, there is so much. Uh, there was a lot of research. There was a lot of, uh, of weeks spent in the dark archives, kind of poring over stuff. I mean, and these guys took what they were doing super seriously. Dan Aykroyd's original script for Blues Brothers was so big it was like a phone book. His mm. He literally put it in a phone he book. Put it in the, he put it in the cover of a phone book and <laughs> yeah. chucked it over a producer's fence, which I love. Um, <laughs> you know, Ghostbusters, you could write a book just about proton packs. I'm pretty sure someone has. Just the amount of detail that they put into all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so that you could write a book on any of these films. So that yeah. was a challenge to, to kind of skate over it and not spend too long on any one film and turn it into a really compelling story which you have done it is it's is a fascinating story i guess the the big thing that strikes me is the best books like this include and really focus in on the failures because it's the failures that you often forget about you just think uh, you know to the layman like me i'll think bill murray um all his later movies when he's a massive star grand Day, obviously things like that you forget about the failures and the failures is where the really interesting stuff happens isn't it i think so i mean talking of bill murray you know, he he always wanted to be a serious actor. People kind of don't really realise that, that he kind of got drawn into comedy. He, he, he wanted to be serious. He played Hunter S. Thompson in, in a movie called The Razor's Edge. Sorry, Where the Buffalo Roam. Mm. Uh, very early on in his career, he went method. Um, yeah, got, by method is another M-word there, isn't it? He went mad, right? I mean, Hunter S. Thompson was a bit of an eccentric anyway. but Exactly, and he kind of channeled that. And so when he Bill Murray would go back to Saturday Night Live and he was in character as Hunter S. Thompson, it was just super annoying and aggressive. Mm. Um but yeah, that that film didn't work out particularly well. There is there are lots of failures in this book, uh, Caddyshack Two, uh, a film which <laughs> sent its director into therapy for a year, and he never made another film. Um, who was that? Who was the director of Caddyshack Two then? Who a guy called Alan Arkush, right? Okay, who does lots of TV, did Moonlighting. He he still he still directs TV. 
Um, he doesn't like to talk about the film, so that was a bit of a coup, kind of tracking him down. I also talked to Amy Heckling, um, who did Hang Clueless. On. Hey, the surname is Heckling. Heckling. Working in comedy. <laughs> That's absolutely fabulous. She did Clueless, uh, but she did National Lampoon's European Vacation, uh, which Chevy oh. Chase also had a terrible time. Not a good film. Um, and yeah. what is the thread that makes them have the terrible time? What is the thing? Because in, in making comedy, they've accepted that there is an element, a large element of risk, right? Because these guys are, because of Saturday Night Live, they are built on improv and spontaneity and, and their comedy is, is deep in their personalities. So to put them in a movie, a highly financed, structured, like a corporation on, on wheels for six weeks, the risk there is huge, isn't it? Well, that's it. I, I think what made these guys brilliant still makes them brilliant to an extent, uh, is also what can make them a complete nightmare. Just that sense of unpredictability, volatility, and just a sense that anything can happen. They were kind of pushing each other, they were, they were trying to outdo each other. And so you would get these runaway productions like the Blues Brothers, where it was just craziness. Mm. Uh, the budget was flying out of control, and, and you know the, the studio were having a complete meltdown over it. But you would get amazing films out of it, but you would also get total train wrecks, because <laughs> unlike these days, there wasn't as much studio oversight and yeah. so they were just kind of left to their own devices. This is long before Marvel, isn't it? It's fair to say. Yeah. I, I love the idea of the execs, and there's a lot of this execs sort of flying in from LA or wherever to, to, to land on set and see what's going on. And they just discover crazy stuff happening on set. And yeah. it's like, it's fine, guys, we've got this, don't worry. There's this one guy in particular, Ned Tannen at Universal, who oversaw a lot of these films, and he just had one nightmare. It was, it was fun kind of writing about these films in succession because he was involved in so many of them, and he was just having a horrible time. Yeah. You know, Animal House, Blues Brothers... Um, he worked on that uh, Huntress Thompson movie and he was just, yeah, his blood pressure was shooting out of control <laughs> working with these, these comic, comedy stars. But, and yet when they, when they hit success, they, they did very well financially because that's something you do very well in this book as well, Nick, which is, it keeps me interested, I'm afraid, maybe because I just love money, but you put numbers on it and that's what we want to know. We want to know how much this film cost and, and what did they make? And it's, a, it's fascinating when you say, you know, I can't remember which one it was, there's one film where they thought it was a bit shonky, it cost 8 million, it took 60 million at the, at the box office. You know, so they were, it was, ultimately it was successful. They were making enough from the successful movies. Exactly, and I, I just, you know, the, the, in movies and comedy in particular, I think that you just don't know, you can't predict what's going what's gonna to hit. Mm. Uh, Animal House, gigantic box office hit, and I actually don't think you would have got many of these films if Animal House hadn't been as big as it was. And, really? And it was, it was gigantic. So what, people, tell us about Animal House. Which one was Animal House and who was in it and what was So Animal House is, is the first film I go into in the book, uh, directed by John Landis. Um, it's uh, sort of a frat house um, uh, comedy set in the 60s, but it came out in the, in the mid-70s. Uh, John Belushi mm. turned him, uh, it was like his first movie coming out of Saturday Night Live, turned him into a movie star. Uh, straight afterwards, Spielberg cast him in 1941. Which was a disaster, wasn't it, 1941? Which was a massive disaster, yeah. What was the thing they said to John Belushi? They gave him a card, didn't they, saying, John Belushi, born 1949. <laughs> yeah. Died. Died 1941. <laughs> um, it so was good. a complete calamity. Yeah, Spielberg still regrets doing that, I think. But um, Animal House, you know, it's so iconic. It's got the toga party, it's got the food fight where Belushi's flinging food around this cafeteria. It just had a sense of anarchy, and I think that's what, Americans wanted at that point and maybe the world the 70s had been such a kind of difficult decade Vietnam Watergate all this really dark serious stuff 
Yeah. And so it was just a kind of a release for people, I think. That's really interesting. This, so this sort of wave of comedy was the frat house party after the austere 70s. I think so, yeah. America had been through such a, a hard time. And there's also a real sense of rebellion in these comedies. If you, if you take a look at like Stripes, even Ghostbusters, the mm. bad guy is the kind of the snooty government official who's mm. trying to... And so there's a real kind of sense of kicking back against authority mm. and anarchy, mm. rebellion. And also these people of that age, 10 years earlier, they would have been going to Vietnam or whatever, and now here they are just being idiots. Exactly. With, with tremendous glee and tremendous joy. And that is something that, that you go into really brilliantly as well. People like, oh, John Candy. I mean, who doesn't love John Candy? It's just so fantastic. My, some of my happiest memories as a kid are watching uh, Uncle Buck, for example. You know, all these... these so he was so, so iconic. And the stories about him, it's really moving. He was, he was a troubled guy, off on the way with com- comedians, of course. Um, and you go into that with some good characters here. I really loved uh, writing about John Candy in particular because I didn't know too much about him actually before. I knew I knew a lot about Bill Murray and Steve Martin and guys like that, but John Candy and Rick Moranis were real pleasures. They're kind of the B players in the story, so yes. they're not in it quite as much as the others. But they're the the guys from Canada who were working on SCTV, which was the much more kind of so that was Second City TV, wasn't second it? City that was TV. the sort of second tier version of SNL. Is that fair to say, or the other version of SNL? It was kind of in a way that yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say cooler because. You know, Saturday Night Live was very cool, but it was it was this very kind of witty, dry Canadian version of it. Mm. It wasn't live; it was pre-recorded. But uh, it's really hard to get hold of actually these days to oh, watch really? episodes. Um, Not you, on you, because I did spend a lot of time when I was reading this book. You have to have a lot. To, just to warn you guys, when you read this book, you will have to have a lot of YouTube stops. You, you do stop off into little YouTube laybys to look stuff up, which is a, which is a joy. That's true. I mean, and uh, that that was true of writing it as well. Mm. I watched every episode of Saturday Night Live the first five years, and that was ah, uh, oh, so good. That I can't believe it. that was work. <laughs> I can't believe that was your job. Some of it felt like work. It's got to be said. But, yeah. but lots of amazing stuff as well. But um, yeah, John Candy, just an absolute pleasure to write to write about. Um, so tell us about it. so John Candy, Canadian. The, the the thing we all know about him is that he was overweight. We all know that he died very prematurely, um, and his 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 dad died very young of a heart condition as well, right? His dad died at the age of 35, so young. And his, I, I, you know, he had a whole family history, so it wasn't just his dad. And I interviewed Carl Reiner, who, who's this legendary director who works a lot with Steve Martin, but he also worked with John Candy a few times. And he said, you know, that John Candy knew that he was going to go in a way. God. And so it was a really kind of sad thing, but he was, he was fighting it his whole life. And he was going to, um, you know, this kind of rehab center to try and lose weight, but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't take it off, could he? Yeah. How old was, did he die of a heart attack? Is that what he killed did. him? He did, yeah. How old was he? Do you remember how old he was when he died? Young. 43, I think. Wow. Um, but, but terrible. I mean, he left behind so many great little films, Planes, Drains, and Automobiles. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Love that film. He's, yeah. he's great in uh, Splash, the mermaid movie with Tom Hanks. Yes. He made a few films with Tom Hanks. But, you know, I, I, everyone I talked to about John Candy, no one had a, a bad word to say about him. Oh, um, he only lost his temper once. I, I talked to his um, <laughs> business partner. Right. Who said that he only saw him lose his temper once in 13 years when a guy heckled him and he was a bit drunk. And he said John Candy lifted the guy up off the ground with one hand. <laughs> wow. He was incredibly strong. Yeah. And uh, it was, he said it was like a cartoon. The guy's legs were like kicking, but uh, he was, he was um, yeah, very powerful, but, but very kind of mellow and gentle. Mm. And that's what's fantastic about, about this book is all these personalities who come together. Um, I've just got to the bit where Eddie Murphy just appears. And I mean, that was just, that was, I mean, overnight is not a thing in comedy. We all know whenever anyone says someone's an overnight success, it always happens to me. I, was doing, I did stand up for like 15 years and people will say, well, Michael McIntyre, overnight success. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He spent 10 years more, in fact, on the circuit. 
Um, but Eddie Murphy came about as close as you can get to an overnight success. Fair to say? Absolutely. He... I mean, I think there's a big difference. He's the standout one. He's the rock star of the pack. Yes. And so he was super fun to write about because I think the others were kind of, some of them, Bill Murray was resistant, but the others were kind of, you know, there at the right time and they kind of grabbed the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy made the opportunity 100%. I don't think there was any stopping him. He Mm. he would go around and he would tell people, I'm going to be a movie star in in two years. I'm going to be a millionaire in in a year. Sure, Eddie. Sure, 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 sure. sure. And at Saturday Night Live, he would, you know, write Eddie Murphy number one on the wall. And he was... He was so determined mm. to be rich and famous, and he made it happen through sheer will. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Because that just makes me, that makes, weirdly, that makes me not like him. I don't know why. I just think, <laughs> oh, you must be so ambitious and annoying and needy when you were doing it. But, but, and yet, on camera, the, the most likable, maybe that's what gave him his rock star appeal, the most lovable of all of them. That's something they've all got in common, isn't it? All these guys, they've, yes. got, they've all got this watchability. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that X factor is. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's just sheer charisma, and each of them had a different, uh, you know, nobody, it didn't feel like anyone was imitating anyone. They all felt really original. Yes. I mean, Dan Aykroyd, you don't get any more original than Dan Aykroyd. Like, there is no one, I can't imagine there ever being anyone like Dan Aykroyd. Just the, yeah. the guy's brain is, is incredible. He's like so a computer. It goes at a thousand miles an hour. I tried to learn uh, the beginning of the Blues Brothers song. We're so glad to see all of you tonight. He just goes in, oh, I can't do it. He's got a machine gun mouth and he's amazing. Yeah. He's amazing to interview. I've had the pleasure of um, talking to Dan Aykroyd quite a few times. And oh, why? Wow. Tell me. Tell me. Yeah, I remember once, um, the first time was probably 10 years ago and I spoke to him on the phone. I just said, how, how's it going? And, and he went into an eight minute um, sort of uh, diatribe about how he'd been on a motorbike ride recently and there was a ghost hanging onto him. And it was just <laughs> madness. But, but he's so earnest and he really, you know, is a true eccentric, but so clever, yeah, so smart, and and so passionate and sincere about all this stuff. You know, Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters just came out of his passion for this stuff. What a legacy, though! If he does nothing else, if that's it, Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, two, oh, I two of my favourite films. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, ditto. Um, the other person we haven't really talked about much uh, is Steve Martin, who appears in this uh, book as well. It's a shame. I mean, the one thing about this book is that you do look at that era and go, "Where were the women, guys? Where were the like it, that sort of era has not aged well, certainly." in light of how nowadays it is all about getting female comics through and making it clear that women are just as funny as men. That debate has long since been put to bed. But there aren't many in this, are there? Even as side subjects here. No, it's true. It's it's interesting. Uh, they're kind of remaking some of these films now with female uh, spins on them. So yeah. we obviously got the Ghostbusters uh, yeah. version with Melissa McCarthy and, and uh, Kristen Wiig and so on. And we, uh, The Hustle has just come out in cinemas, mm-hmm. um, and that's Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. Yeah. But you're right, they're just uh, the, the, the women in the 80s did not get the same opportunities. It was a very macho decade. You see the big action movies with mm. Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Willis. Mm. Um, and in comedy, you know, one of the writers at Saturday Night Live, one of the female writers described it as new macho, the kind of the vibe yeah. there. People like, you know, Belushi, as great as he was, didn't think women were particularly funny, and, yeah. and so they didn't get even the screen time on Saturday Night Live. Um, I talked a bit to Ivan Reitman, the director of Ghostbusters, about this. Right. And he, he said... Um, the, the, the original Ghostbusters. The original, or, right. the original Ghostbusters. Yeah. And um, yeah, he said it was just, you know, factors that there weren't many stand-up comedians who were women at that time. And mm. the, the movies that were getting the big budgets were ones that were more action orientated and stuff like that. So he had some reasons, but... Yeah. It is changing slowly. It's still not there. It's still not there. I mean, when I first did stand up in like 99, 2000, 2001, it was the you'd have your, there'd be a token woman on the bill. For, you know, if there was a woman, they couldn't have two, just mm. one, because I've mm. got my woman just off the interval. Like it's a start, and that has now long since stopped. So, in a way, things are changing now and things have changed a lot. Uh, but you can, 
you can look back on this in a sort of tourism way. You can kind of look at it and go, wow, obviously, not like keen on the fact that there aren't those women there. And it is, it's, not, it's just a bunch of frat boys, basically. But let's enjoy their journey and see what happened to them. Yeah. And, and uh, people like Steve Martin, absolute genius. And again, as with all of them, as we said, they're just so unique. They're so distinctive. Each of them has got their own clear voice. What, what is, it? is it? Is it spending hours on stage doing stand-up that gave them that voice? Well, in the case of Steve Martin... He is fascinating because he is the most cerebral of them all, I think. You know, right. I think Bill Murray is very impulsive. And he, in fact, he wouldn't read the scripts. He, he read the script to Ghostbusters on a, in a limo on the it's way to the set nightmare. on the first day. Can you imagine producing that? <laughs> it's just horrifying. There's a whole theme all the way through the book. Again, Ivan Reitman uh, directed Bill Murray's first film, Meatballs. And yeah. he told me that um, Bill Murray showed up on the set. He hadn't read the script. He kind of had a leaf through it. And he said, this is kind of crap and threw it on the floor. <laughs> Um, Steve Martin was the total opposite. Right. He uh, actually wanted to be a philosophy professor. That was kind of like where he was thinking about going. But instead, he kind of became sort of a philosophical comedian. And even though he was quite wacky, he wouldn't tell jokes. He would kind of, you know, deconstruct humor on on stage. Yes. And write sort of, you know, just weird, you know, absurdist kind of riffs and stuff like that. There's a really fascinating thing you say in the book, which I think is a quote from Steve Martin about how he's getting a laugh not through the joke, but through the act of trying to get a laugh, and that's exactly it's that is it's brilliant. And he and Steve Martin, I've read his his stand-up uh, books, his biography, autobiography, and he's that he get the bar staff like him. That's always that thing with stand-up, and that still counts to this day. If you are stinking out a room, but the bar staff have come in to watch you, you're doing the right thing, <laughs> because the bar staff watch these stand-ups week in week out, and as soon as you've got an individual kind of uh, response and a completely new way of doing comedy, people love you. And Steve Martin. Had that in spades. He's a guy with a restless brain. I think he still is. He's so yeah. creative. Um, he's one of my favorite people on Twitter. In fact, he released a book of his best tweets because he's so <laughs> funny. Like, he just can't not be funny. Yeah. But he was one of those guys who would just want to reinvent himself every time. He didn't want to do sequels. He didn't want to repeat material. So, you know, he would do these these really experimental films like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is this. I really like it. It's a, it's a strange film. It's cut together from uh, all these old, like, black and white film noirs, but Steve Martin sort of has put himself into the story. Just sounds, interacting with Nick, that sounds hellish. I, I just, <laughs> what on earth? These guys, what are they doing? Um, there's a really fascinating bit in the book as well I love. Tell me about this, when he ends up in the back of a car with some guys who drive him and they think he's going to be crazy, wacky, hilarious Steve Martin. And this is the, this is the uh, curse of the stand-up comics life. People think you're hilarious all the time and it's like, not so much. No, he was the intellectual guy. He would rather be reading a book. But yeah, he got picked up before a gig by two fans, two female fans, and they were really excited to meet him and he was just saying, I'm just a quiet guy. <laughs> they were expecting him to be super wacky and, yeah. you know, well, he kind of had the wild and crazy guys thing going on, but that wasn't him. Mm. And, um, you know, he... he he would say that the groupies would try and get into his room at 2am, but it wasn't fun like you'd imagine. Just <laughs> a man <laughs> he was trying to get to sleep. Yeah, yeah it's very hard to do after a gig. Um, if you'd fictionalise this whole book, you've got a great thing because you've got, you've got people doing a job that they are compelled to do, but they're trapped into doing it. They're not that happy doing it. They're sort of stuck making this comedy. Uh, you've got money going out left, right and centre, and then you've got so many. So, I mean, I'm not a fan of the drug, but so many drugs happening in this book, Nick. I mean, every page there's mm. horrifying stories. <laughs> Just it's the 80s. Well, sure, but everyone says that about every decade. Hey, it's the 70s, it's the 90s. But it was like, it, it, I don't know, it just feels like all of them, all these guys. I mean, John Belushi, was, he died massively. Prim- How old was John Belushi when he died? Gosh, he was young. He was in his 30s. Um, yeah. yeah he, and that was coke, wasn't it? Or coke and heroin, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was a speedball. It was kind of a mix of stuff. But, I mean, he was doing everything. I mean, on the Blues Brothers, he was doing qualudes and... Um, what the hell is a qualude? I've never heard that before in my life. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Okay, right, I've never fine. taken one, but it's, it's pretty strong, I think. Uh, mes- mescaline they were scoring from uh, 
somebody who uh, who cleaned a fish tank at a restaurant you know nearby where they were shooting mm. um i mean the 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 fact that always amazes me about the blues brothers is there was a cocaine um allowance built into the budget for the film for night no. shoots so everyone was just doing cocaine oh officially part yeah, of the budget oh, yeah yeah um, Dan Aykroyd has talked about this, and um, wow. that film was—it's—it's mean, it's a miracle it got made. It really was. I mean, John Belushi—I I think he's still fantastic in that film. Like, yeah. I love his performance, but you know, they had to close down for four days because of you know he was just out of action. But I mean, wow. it was—it was a very druggy decade. There's a wonderful quote from Robin Williams that you've put in there, which I love about cocaine is what God invents to tell you you're earning too much money. <laughs> That's so good. That's so great. Yeah. Robin Williams comes later on, right? When does Robin Williams sort he of was, emerge? He was after these guys. Mm. Um, and he wasn't really so much, he obviously crossed paths with them, um, but he wasn't so much part of this pack. Mm. But he he came after them and, and kind of moved more into drama a lot quicker than yes. he yeah, It's yeah, interesting yeah. that he all kind of wanted, almost all of them wanted to get into drama, apart all, from Chevy Chase. It's what all comics want to do. Apart from Chevy Chase, <laughs> but it's it's the thing. It's still the thing now. All comics want to be serious actors, and uh, and and yet so many serious actors cannot, for the life of them, do comedy. Comedians don't realize how good they are at this thing they've got, and they all want to try and. But there's great stuff about Chevy Chase doing, having to do serious stuff. Was it Chevy Chase? He's, he's got to walk. He's got to do a simple thing. He's got to walk across a room in a film, and he can't do it because mm. he's put. He's doing swagger, and he's do, mm. he's being the clown all the time. Mm. And, and is that why these guys were troubled? Why they ended up taking so many, so many drugs? I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't know. It's a combination. It's interesting. A lot of them had a trouble transitioning from doing the sketch comedy to suddenly playing characters. Mm. And it was a very different thing. Even Steve Martin struggled with that. He was used to being alone on a stage. Yeah. It was a very different energy. Uh, you know, and every every line he said, he would get a roar of you know approval. And then suddenly he's on a soundstage and no one's reacting to anything he's doing. And a lot of them had trouble adjusting to that. Mm. Um, I mean, why they were all doing so many drugs... I'm not entirely sure. Mm. I think it was a mix of partying and, and, and pressure. I think these guys were under huge pressure to, to kind of repeat their success. They'd been massive on TV. Yeah. And, you know, it was difficult for them to, to, to flop. And, yeah. you know, you go into the box office numbers and they're just numbers, but this meant a lot to them. It was, it was you know, a competition, a rivalry between all of them. And, yes. You know, yeah. you've got like Chevy Chase and John Belushi um, desperately trying to be bigger than each other. If it is a competition, and this is a big part of the, of the thread of the book, this, this competitive edge, who won? I would say Bill Murray, mm, just I'd, in terms agree, of longevity. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's the one who transcended all of them. Um, you know, as they moved into the 90s, uh, they were older and, and um, you know, they, they basically each kind of had a flop or two that, that kind of ended their career. Bill Murray managed to make the transition. I mean, Groundhog Day was a huge part of that. I finished the book with Groundhog Day. Um, because I think it's 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 more than a comedy. It's it's the most kind of philosophical and profound in some ways of these movies. Yeah, and that was sort of his transition out of comedy and into these these dramas that we've seen him do, Lost in Translation and the Wes Anderson films. Yeah. So these ideas that these clowns are trying to ta- transcend their own their own clownness, for want of a better word, and mm-hmm. he manages it, doesn't he, with Grand Dog Day, which is a wonderful film. That that film transcends all of this stuff, doesn't it? It's amazing. It's, a, it's an amazing film. Uh, it's also an amazing making-up story. Uh, just, you would never guess it from watching it. It just seems like such a perfectly formed, uh, sweet, gentle film. Yeah. But behind the scenes, it was carnage. Uh, really? Uh, was he doing his trick with not letting any lines again? Well, he actually, more than that, he, uh, he went off and rewrote the script for that one. Um, unauthorised. So to give you some context, the idea of this, I mean, when was he doing that? When was he rewriting the script? Like the night before he filmed? Or I talked to the writer um, who said he got a call from Paul Murray. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. Like they just went off to New York and the two of them holed up 
and the, the sets were being built. The director, Harold Ramis, had no idea this was happening. Harold Ramis, who, of course, was Egon from Who was Egon Ghostbusters, from Ghostbusters yeah, who yeah. Bill Murray fell out with spectacularly. Really? They wouldn't talk to each other. Like, he refused to talk to Harold Ramis. Well, after... D- yeah, this is, they had a gigantic falling out on this film um, to the point where uh, the producers had to get involved. I talked to one of the producers and he, he said um, they had to go to Bill Murray and say, look, you need to hire an assistant. We need to go between so we can you know, communicate. Wow. And so Bill Murray goes, no problem. And then someone flies into town and she's deaf. <laughs> and he's deliberately <laughs> found someone deaf to be the go between. So, I mean, he was, he was at his kind of like worst behavior on that film. Really? Um, but an amazing film came out the other side. Also, he yeah. refused to watch it for a long time. Really? Um, Do you know the story about he went to see Grand Day the musical, which mm. is a fantastic, which Tim Minchin wrote, and it, it transferred to New York. Have you heard this story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, do you want to tell it? Well, so, well yeah, it's, kind of, it's actually kind of the ending of the book in a way, is that Bill Murray kind of eventually sort of rolled in and saw the musical mm-hmm. and loved it so much that he came back the next night and, and watched it again, <laughs> which is a very groundhoggy day to, uh, so good. Groundhog day thing to happen. Yeah. Um, It'd be so good to do that, that sort of stunt on the whole cast and get the whole audience to turn up <laughs> the next day to so the cast and looking at, oh my God, that lady was in the front row last night. Ah! That's a great idea. Going into meltdown. Um, Nick, I love this book. How was it talking to all the, the producers as well and, and the various people you did interview? Do they recognise the stature and the status of that decade and what these people have done to the entertainment business? Yes, I think so. I think everyone uh, recognises now what a precious time that was and what a rarity it was. And I'm not sure it will ever happen again that you'll get this just incredible group of people. Mm. Um kind of being left to their own devices. That's the thing, isn't it? That's how Python got good. You know, they got their first series was crap and it. it just got better and better. Blackadder as well. All these examples from British comedy we look at. It's a different it's a different era now. And the the studios are now, as I said, like it's much more oversight. Um, you know, Seth Rogan did an interview very recently where he said, you know, he he aims to be the the studio's third biggest problem rather than the first <laughs> biggest problem. If he can keep the budget down and 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 you know stop the movie from getting so out of control that the studio doesn't, you know, if, st- if the studio is paying attention to a, another movie that's going wrong, mm. then he can do what he wants. Clever. But so I do know, mag- that's how I do Hero Magic. That's exactly <laughs> how I do Hero Magic. It's a very good tactic. Uh, that wasn't the case with some of these movies. I'd no. say, like, a lot of these movies were the studio's biggest headache. And I just think comedy is, is not as ambitious these days, maybe. It's not, you won't get movies like Blues Brothers. You don't get movies like, you know, you do get movies like Ghostbusters because they've got two more in production, but not in the same way. Not in the same way that they would throw money at this this big original idea and let mm. just let leave them to it. Yeah, it's now. It, well, yeah, yeah. Um, listen, uh, Nick, this is a great book. What's next for you? Are you going to put another one of these together? Maybe nineties um, British comedy. Or? <laughs> um, I actually that was my idea for my first book, and it never came about. I oh, really? Gonna, I was going to do one about um, you know, The Office and Space and, and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. um, I do have an idea for a, a kind of quasi follow-up it's not in the world of comedy it's more in the world of action movies mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe the only world in in cinema which has got even bigger characters than the comedians um but i'm just sort of starting to think about that one now and did you enjoy the process of writing this was it a good was it a good experience is this your first one of these yes first okay. book yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, I've it's really good thank you not well, bad I, first no, time thank you very much it's really yeah great. no yeah. i mean I, I kind of put my heart and soul into it you know, it kind of, and I should I should name check uh, Easy Riders Raging Balls by Peter Biskind because that was really a book that I fell in love with when I was young. Hmm. Um, I've read several times, and it, it tackles the the directors of the nineteen seventies and uh, very different people to these comedies. But um, yeah, I, that that was a bit of an inspiration in terms of the structure, and and this is a very different book to that. But um, he's he's a fantastic author, and, and um, yeah, uh, but yeah, my first one, uh, it was it was great to put together. I had, I had so much fun. 
good. Yeah. Only because you spent the whole time watching YouTube. Come on. It's not <laughs> so <work>. much YouTube. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Uh, Nick DeSemelian, thanks for joining us. Wild and crazy, guys. It's a fascinating story. Even, I must say, even if you're not a massive comedy nerd, even if you just, like me, you just have a passing like for all those movies, those great comedy movies from the 80s, dip into this and you will be sucked in. You'll end up reading the whole book. I promise you it's really good. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me.